Hey folks, it's Jared and Nate Miller is back as host, editor, and producer today. He has our own Dr. Ed Salo and Michael Hugos exploring logistics interdiction in a Taiwan campaign. Here at SimSec, we aim to further international maritime peace and security through an exchange of ideas and the rigor of critical thought and writing. If you haven't already, please check out simsec.org for new articles on the most important maritime topics. If you'd like to contribute to the discussion, check out the Write for SimSec tab to learn how you can submit articles for publication. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec Podcast Network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's Men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Hello and welcome aboard the Sea Control Podcast. I'm Nathan Miller. My guests today are Michael Hugos and our very own Dr. Ed Salo. Uh, we're discussing their recent article for War on the Rocks entitled Logistics Interdiction for Taiwan Unification Campaigns. Michael, Ed, welcome aboard. Uh, Michael, could you uh, start us off by telling us a little bit about your background, please? Yes, my my background was all on the, the corporate civilian side. I I zigzagged my way up the the ladder between corporate and in, in consulting gigs, my last big corporate job was a chief information officer of an $8 billion distribution cooperative, actually what it was. And we learned to use logistics as a differentiator. I mean, I was the IT guy, so everyone figured, hey, hey, it must be an IT problem. So a lot of my career since has been focused on how to use supply chains for competitive advantage. Wonderful. Thank you. And, uh, and uh, first question for you is, how does it feel to be on this side of the microphone? Uh, if it, it feels good. It's, you know, it, you know, it's great. I did one interview a couple, probably a couple of years ago about my dissertation on ferry boats, but yeah, this is, this is different. And it was, it was a great team to work with. And I feel kind of honored as kind of, you know, the historian with a bunch of these logistics guys and, had to learn a whole new language and, you know, but, you know, it was kind of cool to bring out different ideas. So. Well, can you remind the listeners a little bit about uh, your background? Yes. Um, I'm a associate professor of history at Arkansas state university. Um, like I said, I was doing consulting history um, I wrote my dissertation on ferry boats in South Carolina because no one had done anything on that. And it's always good to do your dissertation on something that no one else has really studied because then no one's there saying, no, you're wrong. Um, and I've been interested We while consulting. I did a lot of work with uh, the Navy, those kind of things. And you know, one day volunteered to help with Sea Control podcast. They were like, hey, hey you want to edit a podcast? I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. They're like, you'll figure it out. Um, so I've been involved since then and really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Well, as a reminder to the listeners, uh, all opinions expressed here are strictly our own and not reflective of any of the institutions with which we might be otherwise associated. So, Michael, I'm going to start out by asking you a little bit about what brought your team together and what question you were looking to answer uh, in your research? What we, we had already been working with Air Force Institute of Technology and 
when the Russians invaded Ukraine and we started seeing the availability of really good open source intelligence, I said, well, heck, let's start using that open source intelligence. Let's map out the Russian supply chains, which is what our simulation software does, is you draw that map on a you know, on a map of the world. In this case, we're using Google Maps, but any digital map, and then you run it. And, and as you have defined what the elements do, they interact. That's what the simulation is doing is, and you start to see what's going to happen. So very quickly, like in the first couple of weeks, we, the, the simulations, and we got um, a couple of professors at AFIT, Air Force Institute of Technology, as well as Ed, and we started putting this together, and it started to look like, you know what? They can't sustain this thing. They better win in about a week and a half, or they're going to be SOL. The and, and just, it wasn't entirely computer genius, but in the act of drawing the map, you can zoom in on the app, you can flip over to the satellite view, you can look, you can look at these roads, and you see... Look, there are little two-lane windy roads going through forested terrain over little rivers and things. Wow, this looks like ambush country to me. So, and we just said, could this be? I mean, you know, we don't want to be a bunch of armchair generals and we don't want to second-guess people, but I think they made a big mistake. And then that's that's what started to play out. Is that the way you recall that, Ed? <laughs> yeah, you know, it was, um, yeah, it was just like, well, let's, Let's see what what would we want to do if we were Russian and right. just kind of played it out. And the software was really good that we could actually go down to, you know, figure out, OK, this looks like where a depot would be or this is, you know, and yeah, and realize like, hey, no surprise, bridges are going to be important. And, you know, every time now I you know get the news story of the Ukrainians blowing up a bridge or whatever, I. You know, I send it to everyone like, yep, guess we were right about that one too. So we we published it with the um, Modern War Institute, put it on their website, the article we did for that, um, you know, got some good praise for that. And, you know, it was, it was a good turnout. And then we decided that, hey, what should we do for, you know, a second album kind of thing? And <laughs> right. even with that sophomore right. uh, and we we're like, well, let's let's look to the Pacific. So, well, uh, looking to the Pacific, uh, and in the piece, you uh, you and your team highlight a lot of different ways that um, the PLA and PLAN could engage in Taiwan uh, to affect the outcome that they want. Could you kind of elaborate on on what some of those possibilities are? Yeah, we wanted to keep it somewhat simple and just kind of go with broad ideas. The first one, just the blockade idea of that you know, communist China would blockade Taiwan, try to control what's going on, a siege and kind of, you know, starve them out. The second just is the, um, you know, tactical strikes, you know, just not full invasion, just enough to make them want to think about what they're doing and then the full-scale invasion and we looked at how logistics would be associated with those three uh, operations you know and we kept it kind of just like we weren't looking at the actual invasion 
because um, you know that could be a whole big huge model depending on a lot of stuff we just assumed okay they do get to the beach can they sustain if they you know so a lot of it was we were trying to just go with looking at the broad level and not you know get too mired down in specifics of that and you know it's like okay they need to take ports where are the ports in taiwan you know they need the airfields where are the airfields and like, okay, we know they need to get these. And if they don't have it, well, how's that going to slow down the logistics? So staying on, on the logistics here, the Taiwan Strait is not a huge body of water, but it is big enough to play a difference, you know, to, to make a pretty big difference here. So how does that proximity play into your team's modeling and, and how uh, the study came out? Well, you know, the first thing is we all think, of course, of uh, Overlord, D-Day, and then we forget that the English Channel was about 20, 25 miles wide, and the Taiwan Straits are about 100, give or take. And we also took for granted during World War II, because we had control of the air and the sea, that the Germans... We're not going to be able, unless they got a couple of, you know, e-boats or u-boats into the channel, but the channel could be blocked and was pretty effectively blocked. And so we forget this isn't quite like D-Day. The, the Chinese won't have complete control of the air, won't have complete control of the sea. It's 100 miles. It's very stormy. I I believe a lot of the sources are saying there's only really about two two times of the year that you could do your invasion. So everyone would be expecting that. After that, it becomes very stormy, cyclones, etc. So it's not quite as easy as it was for us. And I think that our the D-Day operation was, it was obviously, I'm sure that General Eisenhower felt, my God, we got lucky there. So, you know, the Chinese would have to get four times as lucky in order to make it work. And, you know, and we also considered aspects of, you know, new weaponry, new ranges of weapons that weren't, you know, yes, the everyone thinks about the invasions in World War II, but, you know, at the same point, it's like now with drones, longer range missiles, you know, Taiwan could hit targets in mainland China, potentially, and, you know, cause you know, slow from there. Um, and of course, China can hit Taiwan with, you know, things that are land-based. So, and the other thing that we were kind of talking about is unlike Ukraine, where it seems that, and I, and I always find this just incredible is that, you know, that we can, that Western nations can still supply war equipment to Ukraine. And, you know, and I just assumed that you know Russia would be able to control the air and stop trains from coming in, but you know the fact that we can send heavy equipment and everything there, I'm like, well, that's when I when I noticed that I'm like, that's the first thing where I'm like, yeah, they're not going to win if this is how it's going to be. And you know, with Taiwan, it's a lot. The logistics train to get stuff there is going to be a lot longer, and it's going to be a lot um, more difficult. So that's another thing especially with the blockade that we were talking about and kind of 
some of the original drafts, which I think we had to take out for size, you know, looked at some of these that, you know, how much, how much are Western nations and other nations in the world going to allow this fight to go without, um, you know, know, that, you know, are they going to kind of put their political pressure and other pressure to make this end because economically it's going to be horrible for everybody. I think that that's, you know, unfortunately, I don't think the Ukraine has that worldwide economic effect. So I don't think a lot of people care as much. Again, just my opinion. No, no, really, really good point. Definitely. And and you can see that the whole world would get drawn in when you start to draw the supply chains and how they would support how would we support the Taiwan resistance and how would the Chinese support their invasion? We're drawing in a whole heck of a lot of the world's economies. Uh, the amount of stuff that it takes to supply a modern army of any size on a daily basis. And, you know, a lot of my non-logistics friends, they'll say, oh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. And, and you say, do you understand we're talking Thousands of tons per day, not just once a week or every now and again. Thousands of tons every single day. And a unit, when they land, is could organically contain maybe three days, four days at most of supplies. And after that, you know, I always say, is a soldier still a soldier when they run out of ammunition? Yes, of course they are. But they're not an effective soldier. And, and, and that, you know, the modern military system can't live off the land. You know, so we're not like, you know, a party of raiders or commandos. This is industrial strength consumption of stuff. You all mentioned this in the podcast and you mentioned it in the piece, but there are some parallels between Operation Overlord, uh, D-Day. But as you're talking, it kind of makes me think more of the Tokyo Express of you know, the Japanese yeah. trying to push supplies into contested water in an austere environment. And as the as the resident historian here, uh, do you think I'm onto something? Is is this more of a an apt description? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think that, you know, the, that um, even the British with the Falkland Islands, this kind of long range expeditionary force and going into areas where the other side, that's the cat, um, is has, you know, the power to hit far away before you even get close is going to be um, something that we need to look at. Yeah. And I mean, and I think that we can learn a lot of lessons from World War II um, to figure those kind of things out. And, you know, yes, Normandy, you know, I studied it. I was lucky enough to study it uh, as undergrad, get to go there, see everything. And, but not every invasion is going to be Normandy and not every invasion is going to be, you know, Iwo Jima and everything. So, you know, I think something like this is going to help us figure this out. And, you know, it's also the thing is that the Chinese haven't been successful in their past attempts to invade Taiwan, of course, those were, you know, earlier, but I mean, it's, it's not like they have a military that has a lot of experience and a lot of 
expertise in this. So, you know, we're also assuming that they have learned all the lessons from other people. And and to, to build off that, that analogy of um, Tokyo Express, the Japanese further divided into rat and ant. And rat was the fast-moving destroyers that they would send. And then the ant uh, the Ant Express was the the little coastal barges that would creep down the coast and hide during the day, and uh, that is a pretty good example of the sort of thing that we would have to be doing. We would also add barely submersible uh, vehicles. One of the things that uh, became obvious was that we ought to look at what the cartels are doing to smuggle drugs into North America. They are doing a continuous supply chain in a contested environment. They're using a lot of adaptive techniques. And one of them that I've seen several times in these in these articles are these barely submersible. It goes down about 10 feet. Doesn't need to go down to 100 feet. Just and then stays the heck out of sight and out of trouble. And then often it is not even worth worrying about once you beach it, you unload the cargo. So we would be getting into a lot of that. That so that 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 Solomon Islands. Uh, Tokyo Express is hadn't thought of that. that I, there's some interesting parallels there. Yeah, and I I saw the article, and I think it may have may have even put it up on um, on the SimSec page about the ideas of bringing back you know flying boats and seaplanes and you know, and I was like that that would be so cool and great idea. And I'm not sure how much, and you know, saw the the C-130 that they were wanting to put pylons on to have it land in water. I mean, I think that we're we're going to have to look at these and look at non-traditional ways of supplying islands for this kind of activity. Well, at this point, I think for the listeners, it's pretty obvious what some of the conclusions were of your work, that it's going to be exceptionally difficult for China uh, to supply and resupply and re-resupply their forces in any of these scenarios that you outlined. But what further detail can you all provide about what those challenges are specifically and kind of the any further conclusions that you got from from the piece? Yeah, I mean I'll start with one thing is that, you know, we we found, and this is taking what we looked at here and other things, is that for this to be successful from the blockade, the strikes, the whole invasion, it needs to be quick. It needs to, you know, it's not in any way are the Chinese going to want this to stretch out for any amount of time. A, from logistics, it's going to make so much headaches. B, it's going to politically, internationally cause so much problems for them economically. And see, you know, it's it's going to be an embarrassment. They're they're a rising power. Um, they want to be seen as a superpower. And you know, if they struggle um, with this in any way, it's going to have people questioning. Well, maybe we thought their military, you know, we gave too much credit to it. And I think that any kind, anything that isn't just, I mean, you know, the analogy I use is like college football. If it's one of the powerhouse teams and they don't, you know, score like 70 points on some smaller team, then you're like, 
maybe they're not as good. I mean, you can still win, but if it takes you longer and it's struggle win, it looks bad. And I think, you know, maybe they achieve their military objectives, but if it takes longer, I think that that will cause a lot of people, a lot of nations to maybe not have as much faith in the Chinese superpower as um, they hope. And, and, and there, there seems to be, uh, actually, Ed, as you kind of pointed out earlier, with these weapons now that allow you to hit precision strikes far, far behind whatever front lines there are, you know, hundreds of miles behind, the ability to destroy logistics infrastructure is going to be you know, we we in World War II that was the bombing campaign for three years at horrendous losses for Allied airmen, uh, but now it's going to be drones and missiles. It'll be more precise. It'll be more intense, and it's almost as if we're creating a mutual assured destruction scenario uh, of logistics, which in a way is better than mutual assured destruction enforced by nuclear weapons. Um, it will be a catastrophe for the world and for the Chinese in particular. If they want to be the world's factories, they have about two weeks to win this war and be done with it or else the and the Chinese are not self-sufficient in in petroleum or in food. And we will, of course, start interdicting all those supply chains. It will it will start to come unglued. Um, you know, it's like the world is turning into a big bar. And when some of the larger drinkers start, you know, hurling insults at each other and then, you know, get sort of swinging, we're going to have to figure out a way to break up these bar fights, even if we don't agree, actually, with either one of them. And I think the world is is starting to learn, you know, um, we're we're hitting the global south now with food supply problems because of the the Russians and Ukrainians with the Chinese. It would be 10 times worse. Is there anything that you feel like I've missed anything that you want our listeners to um, uh, to take from your piece that we haven't covered so far? Well, I would say, you know, we take logistics for granted because we're so good at it. You know, we. 80 years ago in World War II, we perfected war as logistics, and we overwhelmed them. Obviously, you know, the heroism of the troops is, is unquestioned. But then second only to that, I think, was the logistics. We overwhelmed them with stuff. And so because we're so good at it, it, can, it tends to be taken for granted. And now suddenly it was all, you know, three years ago, we ran out of toilet paper. Hey, where's the toilet paper? And we suddenly realized, oh, logistics is the foundation of everything else. So without adequate logistics, all of the fine structures that sit on top of that will crumble and crumble quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I think that, you know, we're seeing that maybe this, maybe seeing these kind of simulations, which I'm sure are being done, you know, all over that people will see, like maybe the military action isn't the nest, you know, isn't going to get us what we want. And, um, you know, yes, we don't want any kind of conflict, but maybe we can, maybe people will see like, well, we don't want to go kinetic. Maybe we can just, 
you know, argue stick about with, stick with insulting, stick with insufferable, yeah. insulting words and videos yeah. instead. Diplomatic <laughs> or yeah, economic yeah. or whatever. Because I mean, honestly, looking at it, the blockade is probably the best, right. the best case scenario for the communist government because you know you you don't want to lose the stuff, the economic base of Taiwan because it's important worldwide and it's, you don't want to have to rebuild the country. You know, it's, if you captured it and it's a big, you know, mess with everything destroyed, that's going to be a stress on your economy. It's going to be a stress on the world economy. It's going to probably cause economic international recessions, depressions, and that's just not going to be help. I mean, you know, people want to make, people want to make money and, yeah, the best case for them would be if they could get it without destroying stuff. But you know, sometimes not that gonna doesn't happen. always work out. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, but that is all the time that we have for today. I would like to thank my guests, Michael Hugos and Dr. Ed Salo. Michael, where can we find you online, and um, what are you working on next? SCM Globe, Supply Chain Management Globe, all one word, scmglobe.com. And actually tomorrow we're going to start with this work has led to another little little project with AFIT. And I'm going to start working with three of the professors there on building and going into more detailed scenarios for the Taiwan uh, invasion and trying to figure out what would be some good ways to counter it. What, you know, If we were a logistician, logisticians on the blue team, where would we want to strike? Oh, well, I'm looking forward to seeing that. <laughs> Ed, same question to you. Uh, where can we find you online and uh, what's coming up? Um, well, I'm on Twitter um, or X or whatever it is now. Amphibwar, A-M-P-H-W-A-R. Um, you know, I'm still doing some um, sea control. And I was lucky enough the past couple of weeks to find out that I was named a research fellow at the modern war Institute and the joint uh, special operations university. So, you know, I'm going to have a bunch of cool projects to be working on in the next year. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, looking at weaponization of heritage, which kind of goes with my, um, my academic background and heritage preservation. So I'm going to be working on that, but also some more, looking at historic studies of contested logistics. So going to be some fun stuff out there. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to that too. Uh, thank you both again uh, for joining us and to the listeners. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.